Welcome to the podcast of Eden Worship Center. We believe that God has perfectly revealed Himself through Scripture alone, and that salvation comes by grace alone, from faith alone in Christ alone, and that everything is for the glory of God alone. So as we study God's unchanging, inerrant Word together, ask God to open your eyes, to open your eyes to see yourself and your own sin clearly. Open your eyes to see Jesus clearly, and pray that God would give you the grace to repent, to turn from your sin, and the faith to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. If you'd like more information, go to our website at edenworshipcenter.co. Well, we're continuing in our verse-by-verse study through the book of Genesis. As we've arrived in Genesis 26, Isaac, this son of promise, long-awaited, is now an old man. Now, he's still only halfway through his life. He's actually going to live longer than Abraham or his son Jacob. And yet, just a little bit of a timeline in Isaac's life. Scripture tells us in Genesis 25, verse 20. And by the way, if you look in your bulletin, uh, you'll see all the scriptures that we're going to be making reference of uh, listed there for you. It's so that you can not only follow along, but have them as points of reference. Because we look to the scripture, not what some pastor says, uh, but what the scripture says as the anchor for our life. So scripture is going to tell us that Isaac married Rebekah when he was 40 years old. Genesis 25, verse 20. It's another 20 years. Remember, he then prays for his wife because uh, she was barren, and God opens her womb and she has a child. Uh, That child is not born until he is now 60 years old. 20 years have elapsed, and now he's 60 when his sons are born, Genesis 25, 26. And now these boys have grown up. We don't know what grown up means. We find that in Genesis 25, 27, when the boys had grown up. We're going to make the baseline assumption they're at least 15. at at a very minimum 15, probably more than that. So Isaac is now 75 years old. Just have that underneath all that we're going to talk about. This guy is 75 years old. Uh, Can we just have the attractive, sprightly young gentleman in the front row stand up? That's what 75 looks like. All right, so you got it. Keep that in mind. You've just grossed me out when we get to later in this passage. Oh, Lord, help us. All right, so (laughs) another famine has gripped the land. Uh, It's interesting. Moses, who's the author of the book of Genesis, tells us this is a different famine uh, than in his time of Abraham. I love that reference, and and I've got way too much stuff. We, We don't have time to dwell on this this morning. How many of you have ever read Scripture before and felt like, I'm not sure I understand that. I'm not sure I'm putting all the pieces together. Uh, Maybe it just went right over my head. Moses is writing to people who were super close to this time, and he goes, oh, by the way, as you're reading this, you're probably going to be confused. Let me help you. It's not the same famine. It's a different one. I love the humanity, even in the way Scripture is written. Look at verse 1. Now there's a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, the king of the Philistines. The Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt, but dwell in the land which I shall tell you. So let's do just a little bit of biblical interpretation as we look at this. The scripture does not tell us that Isaac was going to Egypt, does it? It tells us he was going to Gerar, right, where King Abimelech is at. So why does God tell him, don't go to Egypt? 
Well, the reason is because he was planning on going to Egypt. He hasn't, he hasn't got there yet. It doesn't expressly tell us. But God speaks to him preventively saying, don't do what you have in mind. Don't do what your dad did over 100 years ago in another famine long before Isaac's birth. Genesis 12 tells us that in that famine, Abraham goes to Egypt. Why? Because Egypt is sort of exempt from famines, at least the Nile Delta area. They have this gigantic river, the Nile, that waters everything. So unlike the promised land, which is super dependent on rainfalls, which is why it's always tied to God's blessing. If you obey me as my people, I will send the early rains and the latter rains. If you don't, I'm withholding them. We don't have time. There's tons of good scripture references for that. In later kings who were unfaithful to God, and God withheld the rain, and there was famine. But he's, he's thinking of going to Egypt. It made a lot of sense, because it, especially in the Delta area, uh, there, was, there was abundant food to be had. But God says, that's not the promised land. Don't go there. Instead, God, and God doesn't give an explanation He just says, don't go there. And then he repeats the promise that he has given to his father, Abraham. Look at verse 3. Sojourn in this land. I will be with you. You should underline that in your Bible. That's kind of an awesome statement. I will bless you, for to you and your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. Did you notice the language in there? God promises, I will give you all these lands. Lands, plural, not the spot on which you're standing. Not, not this little piece of ground that you call your own. All of it. All that belongs to these other people. All that belongs to these other nations. I will bless you. But even more importantly, let, let's, let's not sort of drop our anchor on that spot because there's something bigger that's in the text. He says, I will be with you. Now we hear that through our modern churchgoer sensibility that says, well, of course, of course God is with us. Right? He's promised to never leave us and never forsake us. And he, he kind of has to, right? He's God. If he's going to be good, if he's going to be nice, he has to be with me. He's obligated to be with us. And let's be honest, why not? Who wouldn't want to be with us? We're kind of awesome. Now, we, we would never express it quite like that, but isn't that kind of how we think about it? Because as soon as we feel like God is not with us, we are all kinds of ticked off. God, you owe me this. You're supposed to fix this in my life. But when you look at all of the other religions of the day, there is no promise that their God will be with them. In fact, rather famously, if we would fast forward a little bit into 1 Kings chapter 18, the prophet Elijah is standing face to face with the 450 prophets of Baal. You remember this story? It comes to a head. It comes to a confrontation on on top of this mountain in the light of day for all to see. And they say, let's just decide who's God. Bring your sacrifice. Build your altar. But the God who sends fire from heaven, let's let that one be God. If it's Yahweh, great. If it's Baal, great. Whichever God can pull that off, that one's the true God. And the prophets of Baal go first. And they're crying out to their God that is not there. They're crying and they're cutting themselves. They're doing all the religious things that they thought that they could do. And I love that at noon, God's man begins to make fun of them. Glorious. 1 Kings 18, verse 27. At noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, cry louder. I mean, he is a, he is a God, right? 
Maybe he's thinking. Maybe he's musing. My absolute favorite. Maybe he's relieving himself. Maybe he's going to the bathroom. Uh, The King James says it so delicately. Surely he covereth his feet. But then it kind of gets to the point. Maybe he's on a journey. Maybe he's not even here. Maybe he's not with you. Perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. Uh, Friends, apart from God's promise to be with us, there's, there's no reason why we should expect that the holy, almighty king of creation and the universe should spend one second with us. Even King David, a man after God's own heart, after his horrible sin with Bathsheba, records for us his repentance and response in Psalm 51, verse 11, as he cries out to God, Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Yet did you hear God's promise to Isaac? Long before any of that would come to pass, God says to him, I'll be with you. I'm not going anywhere. In fact, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be with your children. I'm going to be with their children, with descendants yet to come. Look at verse 4. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens. I will give you offspring in all these lands. And In your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. This is almost a word-for-word repeat of the promise that God had given to his father, Abraham. But I want to fix our attention, because we've talked about a lot of that before. I want to fix your attention. Look at verse 4 with me. And in your offspring, some of your translations say, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. I want us to think about two words that are in there, the word seed or offspring and the word blessed. Now, we've talked in uh, the months that we've been studying through this, in fact, leading up to it again and again, how all of Scripture, including the Old Testament, is pointing towards Jesus, that Jesus is the true and better Adam. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who followed after God. He's the true and better Isaac, the perfect sacrifice. He's the true and better Moses who would come and lead his people. So this promise that God gave first to Adam and Eve, that the one would come, the offspring of woman, would come and crush the head of the serpent. And that to Abraham's seed, within you, within this one who's coming, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. But I want us to think about the blessing that we see in Scripture, because so often, blessing is actually passive. It is something that the the elder, the, the more spiritually advanced person, the father or the prophet or the king, puts on the people. It's received by them, but it's received as potential promise for the future. So let me... Before we dive into the word, let me give you a visual picture of what's happening. Let's go to that next picture. Uh, Kids, tell me what's happening here. He's being knighted. knighted. Are you sure? Is he being horribly attacked? She's about to lay into him with that sword. Did, Did he say something really mean to her? And now she is embarrassing him by saying, you must kneel before me. No, he's being knighted. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? It's good, right? This is a great honor for a knight to be elevated to that status. 
The Hebrew word for blessing that we find here in this text, and I'm going to butcher this, so if you speak Hebrew, do not come and talk to me after the service. I don't even care. Uh, the Hebrew word is vihit baruchu. Ooh, did you hear the little hu on the end there? I worked on that this week. Here's what it literally means. Uh, to be blessed, uh, that word means to kneel. The Hebrew language is very pictorial. It gives uh, visual illustrations of what it's saying. In your seed, all of the nations will kneel. But it's this idea of kneeling like that night to receive the blessing, to receive the blessing of the greater one being put on the lesser one. Dr. Baruch Korman, uh, a Hebrew scholar, said this. The grammar in the Hebrew here is reflexive. Now, now hold on, because I didn't know what that meant either. In other words, the nations don't just stand around and wait for the blessing. That's a violation of the grammatical construction and what it's trying to reveal here. He goes on to say, no, they need to be in the seed. If you are in relationship with the seed, if you are actively kneeling and submitting to the seed, the reflexive of this uh, construction here is that God will then bring blessing and salvation to you. That in you, all the nations will come and kneel. In you, all the nations will bow down before and rightfully worship this one true God who is coming. And yet our hope is not in our power to see and kneel. As if we in our wisdom looked at God and looked at his word and we were smart enough that we figured it out and then we responded rightly and so God now has to save us because I did the right thing and I prayed the right prayer. No, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 and 5 says this, even as he chose us in him, in Christ, that's the kneeling in the seed before the foundation of the world. I don't know if you know it, but that predates you. That predates uh, your prayer. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. How? In the seed, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And the church says, thanks be to God. And so we read in the text, verse 6, So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She's my sister. For he feared to say, my wife, thinking lest the men of this place should kill me because of Rebekah. How old is Isaac? (laughs) Just let that picture stick with you as we read the rest of this. Because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance, when he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out the window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she's your wife. How then could you say she's my sister? And Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might have easily lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Now the first time we meet Rebekah back in Genesis chapter 24, We're told two things about her right off the bat. Number one, who her family is. This girl is eligible for Isaac. She's in the covenant family of faith. She's within the family that God has called Abraham out of. Friends, there's an important lesson there. When you are looking for a potential spouse to marry, you dare not look outside the covenant of faith. If you do... You look at your own peril. 
Just throwing that out there. Here's the second thing we're told about her. Verse, chapter 24, verse 16. The young woman was very attractive in appearance. The, the little Hebrew word there said she's smoking hot. Okay, that, no, that, that's not the literal Hebrew. That sounds better than the literal Hebrew because the literal Hebrew says much good looking. That sounds like a caveman. <laughs> oh, much good-looking woman. <laughs> we saw the same pattern with Abraham. Abraham flees from the famine, and he goes to the same town, to Gerar. In fact, there's a king there with the same name, Abimelech, which means son of the king. So it's not surprising that the kings sort of keep that. And he does the same thing. He says of Sarah, his half-sister, same father but different mothers, He says, she's my sister, as a self-protection. Like, this is is absolutely terrible. I I read a lot of commentaries where they got really bogged down on, was this a lie or wasn't this a lie, and and how does this work out? And we'll talk about a little bit of that. Uh, They're still willing to trade their wife for their own safety. Awesome. Great plan, fellas. Actually, not great plan. Okay, now, our 30th anniversary is tomorrow, but one thing I've learned do not trade your wife for anything. Okay, good talk. If you have a question about that, you should see me after the service. Let's have a chat. Right, and now, uh, coming to probably the, the original King Abimelech, this is probably either his son or his grandson, because there's about a hundred-year window in between these two events of Abraham going and now Isaac going. But the same deception. She's my sister. And then he gets away with it, verse 8 tells us, for a long time. Did you notice that when we read it? A long time later. Now, we don't know how long time a long time is, but this is Genesis. <laughs> a long time could have been a long time. We, we don't actually know. Until the day where King Abimelech looks out his window and sees Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. This is one of those strange Hebrew plays on words that uh, if we're not kind of careful how we read it, it it just doesn't seem to make any sense. The ESV translated laughing. The NIV and New American Standard translate the word laughing here, caressing. uh, The King James calls it sporting. I kind of like that one. Uh, New King James calls it showing endearment. Uh, But the word is actually laughter. The, The word is actually uh, a play on Isaac's name. So if you go to that next slide, if you go to, if you don't know about BibleHub.com, uh, you should write this down right now. Uh, this is one of the most valuable free resources that Christians have ever had in their hand, and it's literally free and at your fingertips. Uh, BibleHub.com. Uh, this is just a breakout of this verse where it puts it puts it back to back. Now in Hebrew. Uh, the I is actually a, a Y sound. It wasn't until centuries later that the I or J would be developed. And so his name is actually pronounced Yitzik. And so the, the literal translation in the Hebrew says uh, Yitzik Metzik. It's a play on laughter. That laughter laughed. That, that's basically what it's saying here. That laughter laughed with his wife. But it's this kind of laughter that as other translations have rightly noted that involved physical touch, caress, which is why, kids, uh, I had one picture on the front of your coloring page, and I changed it because I'm like, a little bit too much. 
uh, they declared a tickle fight with each other in, in a real flirty sort of uh, boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife sort of way. Right, so just let that image play in your mind for just a second, right? It's, it's graphic enough that the king looks out the window and goes, that's not your sister. There's no way that can be your sister. At least I hope not. It's the kind of uh, laughing and touching that is reserved for those in a marriage relationship Today, we would probably have to back that down to some sort of romantic relationship. Although, can I put another parenthesis in for the kids? Uh, When you're in sixth grade, how the boys show affection is I walk up and I like jack her in the back. That's sixth grade for I love you. (laughs) I don't know if you know that. It's like, wham! (laughs) I love you. Uh, And then you hit sort of junior high and early high school. And then it's all kind of like playful, uh, you know, the tickle fight. And it it really is an act of intimacy and touching that you should be really, really careful with. That's reserved for marriage. And I'm not going to say any more because we got this couple sitting right here and I can't get that out of my head. All right. (laughs) But it's the type of thing that you spot. And here's, here's why you can say this. You spot it from so far away that you go, that would be inappropriate with a sister. Uh, keep in mind, I didn't even throw this in here, but what does Paul say that young men should do with young women in the church that they're not married to? Treat them like a sister. If that's your sister and not your wife, then perhaps the way you're touching her in your dating relationship is inappropriate. All right. So let's, let's think about this little debate that I think is the wrong debate here about is it a lie that he said she's my sister? Remember with Abraham and Sarah, they were half brother and sister. And he, the second time that he uses that lie, he's going to say that. He's like, well, it's not really a lie. Uh, she is my half-sister. Uh, Rebecca is not Isaac's half-sister. And yet, the word that he uses for sister can also be translated sister, cousin, or close female family member. She was, in fact, a close female family member. Uh, just give you one example here. Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. You have captivated my heart, my sister, same same word, my bride. My sister, my bride. He uses that twice in those two verses. And yet, if you get hung up on that, you're going to miss the point that King Abimelech didn't miss was this almost went really, really bad. You're representing it as if you're not married to her. Someone else could have come and taken her as a wife. In fact, taken her sexually and brought sin upon the people and shame upon Isaac. King Abimelech was right and Isaac was an idiot. James Boyce, in commenting on this, says, It is amazing that he could fall into sin immediately after receiving such a blessing. God's repeated blessing uh, that he had given to Abraham. The the one person out of the whole planet that God had revealed himself to and said, I'm going to make out of you a people. And God repeats that promise to Isaac, the son. And immediately thereafter, he falls into sin. But Boyce goes on to say, it is such as our nature that makes it possible. Friends, you and I can be so close to the movement of God, the nearness of his spirit and his word and so quickly turn back to the things of this world. If you doubt that, I would like to invite you some point to chaperone a youth trip. 
I will never forget the time that Danielle and I and probably a couple others, we took a bunch of kids, this was a couple decades ago, uh, to an Acquire the Fire youth conference. Anybody go to those? Oh, yeah. Everybody's up front. They're all crying. They're all confessing stuff to Jesus. And you're my best friend ever. We're going to walk in accountability and set the world on fire for God. Literally, before we got back to the van, there were some kids that got ahead of us. They were making out in the van before we got there. Crying and repenting. Making out in the parking lot. It's the same basic thing here. God's great promise to Isaac, and immediately he falls into this incredible sin where he puts his wife at horrible risk. Verse 12. This, this is crazy. Keep in mind as we read this, what's the setting for this? It's famine. There's no water. Things aren't growing. Now, it's been a while, so uh, perhaps they're coming out of it, but look at verse 12. And, and Isaac sowed in the land and reaped in the same year, a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him. The man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. That's super important to what's happening here. Verse 15, now the Philippines, uh, Philippines, also an interesting place, but different people. The Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants, Abraham's servants, had dug. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there, just outside of town. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham, his father. We didn't have time to jump into this, but what a great uh, sermon point this is. Uh, as you have drifted, as things are difficult, dig again those wells of faith generational wells of faith. Uh, most of us had uh, godly grandmothers, godly grandfathers, great-grandparents who were praying for you, who literally prayed you into the kingdom of God. Dig again those wells of faith, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. When Isaac's servants dug in the valley, they found there a well of the spring of water. The, the literal word there is they found living water, which I guess if you're in a desert is actually true. Verse 20, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, this, is, this water is ours. And so he called the name of that well Isaac, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So he called it Sitna. And he moved from there, and he dug another well, they did not quarrel over it, so he called it Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Friends, it is nothing shy of miraculous and amazing that in the first year back after a famine, he sows and reaps a hundredfold harvest. We live in a farming community. You know that doesn't happen. After a rough season, it takes a while for things to begin to move and produce as they did again. This is only the blessing of God. In fact, the way Moses presents it here, we're meant to not miss that. And yet the envy, the jealousy, the hatred were the only responses that the Philistines had towards him. They saw God's blessing on his life and they envied it. They saw God's blessing and they hated him. So who are these Philistines? I, I know if you're familiar with the scripture, you, you've heard that a lot before. Let me just 
uh, give you something from Encyclopedia Britannica. There are five cities of the Philistine Confederacy. There was Gaza. By the way, that one's still in contention today. Ashkelon, Ashdod, Gath, and Ekron. Uh, this area was known as Philistia, or the land of the Philistines, until the Greeks showed up. And the Greeks took the word Philistine and translated it into their language and called it Palestine. Interesting connection. By the way, not much has changed between the Philistines or the Palestinians and God's chosen people yet today. Only now they're not stopping up wells. They're shooting rockets into their housing additions every single day. Why? Envy, jealousy, hatred at the choosing and blessing of God. Uh, One more note on that. Uh, The Jewish nation of Israel today is not equal with God's chosen people. Uh, The Jewish nation of Israel today is a secular nation that by and far uh, rejects the God of the Bible. Uh, More Jews in Israel are secularists than are actually uh, Torah-observing Jews. That it is not equal with the kingdom of God. Uh, There are still people of the Jewish heritage that God has called to himself, uh, but we dare not conflate those two things. All right? Good talk. So they stopped up the wells. They said, you cannot stay here. We do not want you here. Did you notice it said, it didn't say with his flock and herd, his flocks and herds. Think mega farm type thing. Hundreds of people, hundreds and hundreds of animals. So much so that the king says, go away, you're mightier than we are. There's more of you than there are of us. So Isaac moves and digs a well, and they fight over it. And so he moves and digs a well, and they fight over it, and they keep repeating this until he has gone. Just for frame of reference, if we were to walk out that door and keep moving, dig a well and fight, move, dig a well and fight, until we got to the Concord Mall, that's how far he went with his flocks and herds and many servants until he comes to this place of Rehoboth and says, which literally means broad place. God has made a broad, open place for us, not unlike the abandoned Concord Mall that's just a broad, open place now. <laughs> it occurs to me. Now, we're not, we're not told why this next bit happens. Look at verse 23. From there he went to Beersheba. And the Lord appeared to him that same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, I am with you. I will bless you. I will multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. And so he built an altar there. And he called upon the name of the Lord. He worshiped God. And he pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants Dug a well. By the way, if you're in the middle of the desert, you don't just dig a well because you're passing by. That's when you decide I'm staying. They built an altar. They worshiped the Lord. They pitched their tents, and they dug the well. We have no idea why he went from a broad open place, Rehoboth, to Beersheba, which is again 20 miles away. It's basically a giant triangle that he does. But here's what we know. When he gets there on that very first day, God speaks to him. And he says, if God is speaking here, I'm staying here. Dig a well. Build an altar. Pitch the tents. And then the Philistines show up again. 
As we read this, listen for the frustration in Isaac's voice that, that is just sort of seeping through the text. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? And they said, We see plainly that the Lord, that Yahweh, has been with you. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us. Let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm. Just as we have not touched you, really? Like when you're filling in all our wells so that we would die of thirst in the desert? Okay, whatever. We've not touched you. We've done nothing to you but good and have sent you away in peace. Isn't it interesting how we sort of uh, look back with rose-colored glasses on the past? And now you are now the blessed of the Lord, the blessed of Yahweh. So he made them a feast. Isaac makes them a feast, and they ate and drank. And in the morning they rose early, exchanged oaths, and Isaac sent them, away, sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day, do not miss how often this passage, especially set within Genesis that has long spans of time, keeps telling us on that day. On that day, we are meant to see this is tied to the blessing of God. On that same day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said, we have found water in the middle of a desert. And he called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Ber Sheba to this day. They come to him and say, God's blessing is all over you. I know we kicked you out, but we can't leave things like this. It's an interesting glimpse into their culture. Did did you notice they say, come, let us make peace. And rather than first swearing peace and then let's sit down and we'll eat together, first they prepare a feast and they eat and drink together. By the way, that's still Eastern culture. You don't begin with business. You begin with kindness and hospitality towards people or the business doesn't happen. Relax. Sit down. You're my enemy. Welcome. Here's food and drink. These people hate him, right? That's Isaac's confession. Why why have you come? You hate me. You sent me away. In our day, if someone hates you or or even uh, minimally abuses you, what's the first thing that we do with any perceived wrong? Well, we, of course, do the holy and righteous thing, and that is we take to social media as quickly as possible. Now, we're Christians, so we're not going to call him out by name. Pastor John did this. We'll just sort of veil it behind. You know, there's some people out there fill in the blank, right? Isn't that how we do it? That would never happen. Thanks be to God. What does the Bible say? Romans chapter 12, verses 19 and 20. Paul's going to say, don't take vengeance for yourself. Leave that to the hands of God. Leave into God's hands that which you cannot control. Uh, Paul's actually going to reach back and quote from Proverbs 25, verse 21 and 22. That does exactly what Isaac does here. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. They went away in peace, and what are we told? On that very day, at the same time, his servants show up and say, by the way, God has just rewarded us. We just found water in the middle of a desert. What's the result? Number one, peace with the Philistines, at least temporarily, although God has promised, I will destroy them and take their land and give it to you. And Number two, the continued blessing of God. 
Moses, in writing this, again, makes it unmissable for us to not connect the dots between God's blessing and Isaac's response. And yet, friends, God's blessing rarely looks like we think it should. It rarely looks like what we have been praying for. We tend to think God should fix everything for us. And yet, consider this. To this day, these Philistines, these Palestinians, are still fighting with the offspring of Isaac. Nothing has gotten fixed in the last 3,000 years. That's not what God was after. They're still contending today. Usually, and and I, I don't think we're usually this honest, but if we were, it would sound like this. When I was a kid, my parents dragged me to church. It was probably, you know, I never really cared about church, but it was just when I was a kid. And then in teenage years, oh man, the wheels came off. How many times have we heard this story? The wheels came off. I was rebellious. I did whatever I wanted to. Those years were rough. I rebelled a lot. I partied a lot. I made a series of bad sexual decisions that follow me to this day. The 20s were a blur, and now things are really rough. I've got broken relationships. I've got a history of jobs that I've burned through. I've got financial problems. I've got legal problems. I've got kid problems by a whole bunch of different parents. Yes, I've made these choices over the past 20 years, most of which I'm not willing to change. Don't ask me. Also, don't ask me to stop hanging out with the people that got me into those situations, that helped me make those choices, who guided me towards those choices. But now, I've come to church for a whole three weeks in a row, and God still hasn't fixed it. I guess God doesn't care. I tried this Jesus thing. It didn't work for me. How many of you have heard that testimony from the lips of people you know and love again and again? And it's ludicrous. And yet it's the story of one of these two sons coming from Isaac. We talked a couple weeks ago about Isaac's sons that were born to him of Jacob and Esau. This passage concludes with a heartbreaking commentary on Esau. God is going to choose to let his covenant promise track from Abraham to Isaac down to Jacob and through them to us. And yet God makes a distinction. Jacob have I loved and Esau have I what? Hated. Verse 34, when Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Berai, the Hittite, to be his wife. And Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. And they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. The previous chapter introduced us to these boys, Jacob and Esau. We're going to see in not only that chapter, but in the two chapters yet to come, Jacob is not only going to steal his brother's birthright for a bowl of soup, we read about that one a couple weeks ago, for a financial inheritance, that's Genesis 25, but he's going to steal his brother's blessing, again through deception in chapter 27. It's that spiritual inheritance, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. It's how it should have been. But in the providence of God, before they'd done anything good or bad, God said, I've hated him and I've chosen him. The God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. But it's as if Esau doubles down on despising his birthright, despising his spiritual inheritance because he takes not just one, but two wives from the Hittites. 
This has been the pattern we've seen. Don't take a wife from the pagan people who surround you. The people right there around you, they will corrupt your heart. They will steal you away from this covenant of God. Don't go to the unbelievers. Kids, i got a question for you. Who is the wisest man, and we got a slide for this, who is the wisest man that ever lived? Jesus, good answer. Not the one I was looking for, but I, I think that one's actually true, more true than the answer I was fishing for. Anybody else? Solomon, there you go. Solomon, the son of King David. I love that Jesus sort of works for everything. Wisest man that ever lived, Jesus. How are you going to argue with that? Uh, Solomon, God says, ask of me whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. And he says, God, give me wisdom. Give me wisdom to lead these people. And God says, I'm going to give you wisdom. I'm going to make you the wisest man that ever lived, but I'm also going to give you all these other blessings that go along with it. Kids, did things turn out good or bad for Solomon? The answer is bad. 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 through 4 says this. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, an Ammonite, Mennonite, an Edomite. I'm just kidding about the Mennonite. Sidonian and Hittite women. That's where Esau is drawing his wives from, from the Hittite women. Solomon does the same thing. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you. For surely, catch this, they will turn your heart after their gods. One of the worst phrases in the Bible, and Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses. This was, this was a political power grab. He had 300 concubines. Uh, that was a sexual issue he probably needed to see somebody about. And his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after their gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David, his father. Kids, let, let me just say it again. If you choose a husband or choose a wife, and long before that, if you choose someone to give your interest and affection and attention to who is outside the covenant family of faith, you do it at your own peril, at your own danger. Oh, may we again dig the wells of faith that our fathers are generations before have handed down to us may we trust that faith more than any other love or more than any other lord we find here uh, this king who comes don't trust him don't trust any of the kings of this world as if they are our hope or savior don't look to any man or woman in this world as if they were your savior i promise you they will let you down even the christian ones are going to let you down but you dare not give your heart to someone outside the covenant family of faith. You will pay dearly for it. And as we read here, it was bitterness to the soul of the whole family. In closing, Dr. Griffith Thomas, an Anglican pastor and theologian, wrote this judgment, this assessment of Isaac. He was the ordinary son of a great father. And the ordinary father of a great son. These three, he goes on to say, these three patriarchs 
were all very different men, yet Isaac was a shadow of his father and his son. He's the ultimate middle child who never quite lives up to the expectations. And yet God is not in the business of building dynasties or cults of personality. He's building a kingdom and a people for himself. It's not about Isaac becoming great. Friends, your walk with God is not about you being great. It's not about you being blessed. It's not about you being happy. It is ordinary people leaving a legacy of faith about an extraordinary God. For all the attention given to Abraham, his father, all the attention we're going to find in Genesis to Jacob, who's going to have his name chained to Israel, and all of his sons that are yet to come, Isaac only gets one chapter. One chapter that's really about him. And in that time, we see him follow his father's bad example. We see him badly mishandle the blessing of his sons. And we know almost nothing else about him. And yet, forever. This is for those of you who feel like maybe your life hasn't turned out. You're middle-aged and it hasn't turned out the way you think it was going to. Maybe you're young and you feel like all those prospects have, for one reason or another, got wiped off the table. Maybe you are older and more advanced in years and you look back and you say, I never accomplished that which I hoped to. That's Isaac. There's nothing significant or spectacular about him, but do not miss this. Forever God is known as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There was nothing extraordinary that should draw our attention, and yet there he is right in the middle. God has forever attached himself and said, I will be with him. My legacy of faith has been passed on through him. His life is the first and strongest foreshadowing of Christ we have in all the Old Testament. He points towards Jesus, even though he does it imperfectly. And friends, in our lives, even in ordinary, even in obscurity, may we do no less but point with Jesus with our lives. Point to him. Trust in him. Pass that legacy of faith onto our families. If you look at your bulletin, you, you have some notes for family worship in there. Read together again tonight after dinner. Sit down and read together Genesis chapter 26. And talk about the questions, why do you think our troubles, we find it in verse 1, in the famine, we find it in verse 7, as he says, if I tell them she's my wife, they're going to kill me. Why do you think in our troubles, it makes us willing to sin to protect ourselves? And when we do that, what have we forgotten about God? What have we forgotten about his promises, his covenant towards us? Talk about how How can being married to a non-believer make life bitter, as verse 35 says? What can we do to avoid that? By the way, that starts long before marriage. And then pray together. Thank God for including our family in his family. Ask him to help us to remember and honor him in all that we do. Thanks for joining our podcast. We pray that God would bless you and strengthen you through his word. If you'd like to find out more about EWC or give tithes and offerings in support of this ministry, visit our website at edenworshipcenter.co.